Good morning, everyone. I hope that you're well. Let me just start by saying um, happy birthday to Tim Hoffman. Happy birthday to, to Tim Hoffman. Man, I want to just say it's such a privilege to do life with you guys. It's such a great privilege to know you. I think you're an outstanding human being. And uh, it's a special shout out to the Hoffmans this weekend. Um, Anyway, as you know, uh, my name is Luke, and I have the privilege of preaching the second message in our Origins series. Uh, I want to just say, before we get into it as well, this is just incredible. An atmosphere of worship in this place. Uh, there is also a hive of uh, action as people scramble around uh, to be a part of making this happen. It is just brilliant, and I've loved every second of these last few meetings together on Zoom. I um, want to jump right in uh, today to today's message. Last week we launched our Origin series, and uh, we looked at uh, chapter one of Genesis and verse one of that chapter, and uh, we looked at the three possibilities. We asked the question, "How did we come to be here?" There's really three possibilities that every human being kind of believes from. And uh, that is, uh, we, we came here to be here through blind luck. We came to be here through a multiverse. Or, and I put to you, the evidence is stacked in favor of the third and final option of divine design. And we looked at a couple of tentative at the universe and the world in which this God who designed it. And uh, that's really encouraging for many of you. I got some stories. I heard, I heard uh, Ali just messaged me during the week. Having listened to the message, it reminded her of an article she had read about how um, when we go out into nature, when, when, really when, when awe is triggered in our beings, how uh, a different part of our brain is activated and new things are released within us, totally renewing uh, the way in which we face our perspective. It was just such a beautiful confirmation to see how science just aligns with the the word of God and the truth of the scriptures and uh, make something beautiful come alive to us. Let me uh, let you know as what's happening next week. Next week, we begin our journey. We kind of, I mean, we continue our journey. We kind of started by saying, who is God and, and how did we come to be here? And then we continue into who are we as human beings and what is our role in this world? And then we'll journey a little bit further in the coming weeks into what went wrong with our world before we see how it gets put to right. But we begin to move into human beings next week and our role in the story. Today, though, we grapple with who is God, and uh, we grapple further with Genesis chapter 1. And I want to just put a disclaimer on the front end. Today's talk is a more heady talk than I'm used to giving. It's far more teachy-orientated than I'm used to doing. But we're tackling a a passage that has uh, been the subject of much debate within the Christian church. And I really want to do it justice. I really want to try and honor all of you. And so today, I might take just a little bit longer, although I'm going to lean in and try and keep us moving swiftly. Um, And you're going to have to concentrate a little little bit harder. I hope you had that cup of coffee and you took your vitamins this morning, but I'm hoping to take us through um, Genesis chapter 1 in a way that that, 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 that leads us to its original intended purpose when God wrote it. Uh, and so today we're going to be speaking to more of the question of who is God and uh, who is this God behind creation and what was God trying to say to us from Genesis chapter 1. And uh, rather than read it, we're going to watch today from the Bible Project, as we uh, simply because you've already read it, I'm sure, and this video is going to make it come to life for us. So let's watch together from the Bible Project. Let's take a look. And uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. 
Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then, on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay, so the first realm of order begins with light on day 1. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day 2, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land, and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four... Let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then, matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now over and over, God says, was good. But then after making humans, God says, Hey, thank you so much. Jeez, uh, I, I want you to know that uh, I'm really putting these guys to the test. Uh, this was Luke's idea to show a clip that was online being grafted in there to mix it up. And so the team here scrambled and they pulled it off. And so well done, guys. Super proud of you. Uh, there was a lot of chaos here. It that's so cool. I want to encourage you, if you want to go back and watch that, you can Google Bible Project Genesis 1, and you can find that clip, and you can see some of that. Uh, Go back and read it, but let me jump into this message today. The heart of Genesis chapter 1, the main point of this passage, if you will, is that God created everything, and uh, that everything else in the world, that we would be tempted to both 
worship or fear or revere was created by him. And so when we worship anything other than God, we're worshiping created things instead of our creator. And God writes this creation account so as to draw us to know him for who he is as the great creator and to worship him with all of our being. We see that he creates the sky and the land and the seas and as well as um, the penguins and the people and the angels and the acacias. Everything is created by God. And Genesis chapter 1 is telling us it's his and it's there to give him praise. Genesis chapter 1 is concerned with the who and the why, and not with the how and the how long. Genesis chapter 1 is concerned with the who and the why, and not with the how and the how long. I'm sure many of you are aware that within Christianity, there is so much debate around how God did it, and how long it took God to do this. But there's no debate around the big idea of this passage. There is no debate around the big idea of this passage, that God made everything. You see, every Christian is a creationist. Every Christian, regardless of whether you believe that the earth is really old or really young, or God took a long time to make it or a short time, every Christian believes that God is the one who made it. That's the headline. That's what Genesis chapter 1 is all about. The debate centers around how God did it and how long God took to do it. Did it take 6,000 years or did it take 4.5 billion years? In other words... Did creation appear instantly or did it kind of evolve gradually over time? But no Christians debate that it was God himself who oversaw the whole thing and God himself who made it all. You may be wondering, do we as a church, as Common Ground, have an official position about how this happened? And the answer is, let me, let me take a little bit of a longer stab at it. Within Common Ground, we speak of three kinds of doctrinal issues. We speak of issues of blood, ink, and pencil. Blood, ink, and pencil. Genesis chapter 1, the big idea, God created everything. That's a blood issue for us. This is a, we, we don't, we hold this with a closed fist. This is not up for debate. We believe that God made everything. And, and in fact, blood issues for us are those issues of doctrine whereby we would say as a church, I don't think you're a Christian if you don't believe these things. This is blood issues for us. Then there's ink issues for us. These are issues with which there's a little bit of debate in the scriptures, uh, but, but we believe this is the way it is. We're pretty certain of that. And these things, whilst you could probably be in the church, you will find um, from time to time you'll be made quite uncomfortable because we're going to push toward a particular end shaped by these ink things, uh, and these determine much of our ministry philosophy as well. But then there's a third category as well of pencil uh, issues. These are issues in the scriptures where there is much debate, where we don't see the Bible being absolutely crystal, crystal clear. And these are not hills that we're prepared to die on as a church. Did God create everything as Genesis chapter 1 teaches? Blood issue, absolutely yes. This is not up for grabs for us as a church. How God did it and how long it take, took him to do it. There is much mystery. This for us is a pencil issue as a church. On the one side of the spectrum, you've got the, these views held by many Christians. Many Christians who know the Bible better than me, who, who, who've, who love Jesus more than I do. And, 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 and there is the belief that it took 6,000 years to do that. On the other side, there is a, a belief held by many Christians who love God far more than me and who know the Bible far more than me. And they believe that it took many, many more years to do that. Pencil issue for us. The blood issue is God created it all. It's all his. The rest is 
pencil issue for us. And there are strengths and there are weaknesses to both sides. And there are also dangers to be avoided on both sides as well. I'd love to speak to some of these dangers very quickly for us as well. These are two things that I've kind of observed observed in the church and uh, I want to guard against these things for us. If you're on the side of this side, where the earth is very young, sort of young earth creationist is the catch-all phrase for here. The, there's some stuff that I've come across on the internet that I find quite unhelpful, that I'd, I'd really be loath to see take root in our church. And this is the kind of sweeping statements from this side that kind of goes like this. That, that, that if you don't believe this camp, then if you don't take the Bible literally, then you don't believe the Bible at all. Or that um, if you don't believe this position, then you have elevated science above the scriptures and you've put science above your faith in Jesus. That uh, this is just the first step in a slippery slope. I want to say to you, it's that kind of narrative and that kind of rhetoric that is incredibly unhelpful in the church. It undermines, uh, it's divisive. I think it, it dresses up as a quest for truth, but really it just spreads divisiveness in the church. It's not helpful. And I would caution us against those. We need to understand that there is, um, there is much debate around these passages and there is much mystery. And that should cause us to hold them in humility and to be able to, at the end of the day, regardless of where you land, to want to honor our brothers and sisters in these different perspectives on pencil issues. On the other side are those who kind of believe that uh, God took more, far longer and God used, we could say, theistic evolution perspective. And, and, and what I've seen here that I don't like is the kind of sense by which there's an almost intellectual arrogance that can be held with this view. Obviously not by all and certainly not by anyone on the screen. I'm certain of that. But there can be at times a kind of looking down on, a kind of poo-pooing of, maybe that's not the right phrase, poo-pooing, but, um, but you, you know what I mean? There's a kind of uh, arrogance way in which can take root here, where we look down at those who believe in younger. And I want to say to you, this is not good either. This undermines unity in the church. This is not the kind of culture we want to breed in our church. We want to see a church whereby we honor one another and we find ourselves in unity in Christ in the middle on issues of pencil, whilst we hold true to issues of blood, like God created everything. And so I want to guard against both these two things, saying that this is not a blood issue. This is a pencil issue. And what I've done is um, on the website, commonground.co.za, we've got together a going deeper document. It's a link that was put to, a link to a blog put together by Andrew Wilson, where he looks at the 10 views within the framework of biblical orthodoxy, right? Over the centuries, and you can take a look at them. And he also very, very briefly kind of critiques them in terms of strengths and weaknesses of each. But I want to say to you, all of these, these are pencil issues in our church. The blood issue is God created it all and he is over it all. Go along and check it out. And you will see the 10 views within biblical orthodoxy. I want to say that all 10 of these views are held by people who know and love God more than I do who know and read the scriptures more than I ever will, who know science far better than I will. And so I want to call us to engage, to read the scriptures and to find a measure of conviction, absolutely. But at the same time, I want to call us to hold that with a measure of humility where we prize honoring of others who also are seeking to honor Christ, but who see things as differently than us. This is the kind of space I want us to be in as a church. I believe that Genesis 1 is perfectly designed to answer the who and the why questions of life. 
It's my view that this passage is not there to persuade us of how and how long. But it's, designed, it's not designed to be pressed too far about the details. Rather, it's perfectly designed to teach us about the who and the why of creation. It's astonishingly perfectly designed. Genesis chapter 1 is 76 words in the original Hebrew of which every single one can be translated into every single language that is known in the world. Just stop for a second and marvel at that. Genesis chapter 1. I see this creation account as something, uh, the the Bible's creation account, what's that? Okay. Must I keep speaking? Can you, can you hear me still? Okay, cool. So we're just going to be changing the battery. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to keep speaking and you can hear me and it won't be long and I'll be back on screen. Uh, this is probably the, the best part of the meeting. You don't actually have to see me. Now you can just hear me. Um, I was always told I had a great face for radio. So here we go. Imagine with me the, the, the way in which science and the scriptures creation account complement each other, right? Uh, imagine with me you were at a wedding, and I was the one I often, uh, whenever I'm at weddings, most of them, I'm doing the wedding. And so uh, there comes a moment in the wedding where I say to the bride uh, and to the groom, you may kiss your bride, I say to the groom. Uh, at which point, here's one version of what just happened, okay? You could say, what did we witness when that happened? We witnessed two people who just got married declaring their undying love for one another by kissing, kissing one another passionately, right? Two people who, um, are you getting my good part there, Dirk? Um, uh, two people who just got, married, declaring, just got married declaring their undying love for one another by kissing, kissing each other passionately. On the other account, Right On the other side, maybe the more scientific account, you could say this, that uh, we witnessed two people, uh, if we pressed it for the, we passed the who and the why, we went to the how and the when. You could say for 8.4 seconds, we saw the approach of two pairs of lips with the reciprocal transmission of saliva and microbes and CO2, etc. You, you see, now, one of them is the how and the how long, uh, the, uh, the other one is the who and the why. Now, let me ask you, which one is true? And the answer to them is both. Does scientific explanation negate a non-scientific explanation? Absolutely not. We need both of these two things. They are declaring different things. Both of them are simultaneously true. Why, do, why did God not give us a more scientific account to Genesis chapter 1? I wish I, had a more, um, I wish I had a more South African example. Maybe some of you could send, send a link or type one in the chat there. Uh, I'd love to hear it. But... Uh, how many of you have read uh, Andrew Morgan's book, uh, Diana, Her Story? Uh, raise your hand if any, any of you have read it. I'm taking Raise your hand. Anyone read Diana, Her Story, right? This is a long book. It's a biographical account of Lady Diana's life, right? How many of you have heard Elton John's song, Candle in the Window? Right? Now, Few people are interested in the meticulous details of Diana's life. I'm sure some of you are, and I'm sorry I've just offended you, but, but there are far, far more who just simply aren't, but, but who have heard the song and have found themselves captivated by the meaning that was captured in the song and captivated in, in, the, in the expression of her life and drawn in to, to, to know more. These two things are not exclusive. They are complementary. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 is candle in the wind. What we have when we look at our scientific world is Diana 
her story. These two things simultaneously exist and complement each other whilst doing different things. I love the way Genesis chapter 1 is organized non-scientifically. It's, 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 I think it's shortened almost deliberately so as to focus our attention to show us certain things about God. It's brilliant the way, the way it, think of the one phrase, God created, it says, um, and the stars. Genesis chapter 1 says, yeah, you created this, this, and this, and the stars. And you just think of how much of our universe is occupied by the stars. And God just gives them a fleeting sentence. What does it do? It just shows something of the magnificence and the sovereign splendor of God by being arranged simply like that. Do you know that if you go into the deeper darkest jungles and and just like here i'm at africa house where this uh, all nations exist to take the gospel to the furthest parts of the world the unreached people groups you can take this story with you to explain who god is you could not take an explanation about the cambrian explosion about the large hadron collider about the higgs boson particle you couldn't take it that would the how and the when would help you nothing in bringing the gospel and the truth of who god is to all parts of the world but you can you can bring genesis chapter one it's 76 characters uh, 76 words in the hebrew that is perfectly translatable to every people in all times of history communicating the truth of who God is. And I think this non-scientific account is genius in terms of what it sets out to accomplish. We need to remember when we're grappling with this text that the Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. The Bible was written for us, but not written to us. And so what we need to do, and this is the task often of the preacher, or always of the preacher, actually, we need to go back and understand what did it mean to the original audience then. And then from there we can draw what does it mean to us now. Right? We have to go back because it was written for us but not to us. We need to go back and understand what was God saying to them then so that we can know what it means to us now. And so here's the important question for us today. How would the original hearers have understood this passage? What would they have read? I'll tell you what. They would have understood this. The big idea of this passage is that God created everything and that he alone is worthy of our worship. Take a look at why I say that. In Moses' time when this was written, many people worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? These were objects of worship. These were contender gods of the day. And by writing Genesis 1 in, in, in this way, God is saying, I made your gods. Moses is saying as he writes this, my God made your gods. He's saying you're just worshiping created things. You can actually see the wonder of day four. It's almost like God is saying, or Moses is saying, you know, they, they weren't even created at first, the gods that you worship. They, were, they came in on day four. It's, it's almost like this creation account in that day would have deflated the tires of the belief system of the kind of pagan gods around God's people. Take a look at verse 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 1 with me as we look at it over here. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the for signs and seasons. A word that was very much part of Hebrew uh, literature and language at the time is sun and moon. Look there, just called lights. 
It's like the, Moses deliberately avoids using the name sun and moon. Uh, what he does is he creates these lights that are d- explained as servants of the earth. They, they, they're certainly not deities who can control the destiny of human beings, right? God says, uh, these things are the servants of the world. Don't worship them. They just created things. Worship me, the creator. That's what's going on here then and there passage through the lens of the first here is even look at day five remember day five all the great sea creatures are created many of the pagans believed that these great sea creatures were rivals to the gods the great leviathan who was a contender with the other gods right and moses is saying don't stress about these guys these guys are so late to the party they're in day five they weren't even up in the high numbers right don't be afraid of these things. These are, don't make the sea creatures the subject of your nightmares. No, you reserve fear and you, re- you reserve revere for the great creator of the whole universe. By structuring it like, like this, this is what the original hearers heard. The ancients thought of the seas as very different than we did. As we do. I mean, yesterday I was paddling in the sea, having a glorious time. That wasn't part of life back then. The seas were feared. They were powerful. They were tumultuous. And they were feared and they were worshipped in the ancient world. Take a look at verse 9 and 10, how this creation account describes their making. And God said, let the waters under heaven to one place and let dry land appear. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas. Look at the language. It's descriptive. The gathering of the waters. It's almost like you can imagine the hands of God shaping and fashioning the the, the land like God shapes clay. He's showing you even these terrifying seas that you're so afraid of. I just mark them out with my hands. I determine where they should be. Worship and revere me. Don't be afraid of these created things. I am the God who made it all. Worship me as creator. If you were hearing these words at the time they were written, this is the kind of thing you would have heard and understood. Don't fear them. I am the one who literally with my hands shaped everything that is. Science is about the, the how and how long. But this account is about the who and the why. And we've got to see that for what it is because that's how the original hearers understood it to be. I think the same temptation exists to you and I today to worship create things instead of the creator. We worship our relationships. We worship our spouse or our children. We worship our money. We worship our careers. We worship these temporary things instead of the creator behind all of them. I I, I did double check with you that you took your vitamins this morning. We've got a little bit to go still. Two more points, I think, to make here. Here's the next question. In understanding what it meant to them then, to understand what it means to us now, we need to go back and we need to ask ourselves, how is this creation account different than other uh, sort of Middle or Near Eastern creation accounts that were already in existence at the time? In other words, Genesis 1 wasn't spoken into a world uh, with no creation accounts. It wasn't just silent on this. There were many other creation accounts around how the world began. And so when God spoke this one, we need to ask, what is it that God is correcting? What is it that God is trying to differentiate himself from to show more clearly who he is and how that brings clarity into this noise? Does that make sense? How is the Christian God different than all the other gods around at the time? Because this is something that God is highlighting in the way that he's communicating. And so basically all other creation accounts can fit into two categories. 
the polytheistic creation accounts and the monotheistic creation accounts. Polytheistic creation accounts, all of them in, in, in various more nuanced ways kind of go along the track that creation begins, our world begins kind of as a result of conflict between uh, the gods that was going on. So there was some or other fight between the gods. Right, whether that be about a great sea beast who is at conflict with the gods and then is slain, and then from the belly of the great sea beast, human beings come out. And so there is this pre existent world where there are gods who are in conflict, and it's their battle, and then one of them is slain, and out of the slain god comes life. The, 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 we, many of these creation accounts at the time were, were like this. And so our world is kind of a derivative world out of another world where there is conflict and strife. And then our world is derived from that. This is very different than the Christian, the Christian text in Genesis 1 is doing. And I'll explain in a second why. On the other hand, there's the monotheistic creation accounts. In other words, where there's one single person God, not polytheistic, one single person God who creates. And, and, and time after time, just like um, uh, Marduk in the Enuma Elish, which is uh, the ancient Babylonian creation account, there is the sense of this God who creates human beings and a world so that they can serve him and so that they can worship him. Right? Why is Genesis 1 different? What is God, in, in speaking this way, correcting? What is God showing us? How is he contrasting himself from the others? What does he teach us about himself in this moment? Well, let me start by looking at the one side of it. The, the creation of kind of Genesis 1 is birthed completely differently than both the polytheistic ancient worldviews or the monotheistic ancient worldviews. On the one side, you've got the polytheistic multi-view gods, right? Who believe that the world was created out of a battling, but, but our world is derived from this great battle or conflict that happened. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the one word that I didn't look at last week, created. This word created is a technical term which speaks almost always in the Bible of God creating something out of nothing. Right? Almost always, not always, but almost always, of God creating something out of nothing. That there, there was nothing before, and then God created in a divine act, and now there is something. In other words, there was not a pre-existent world from which ours derived itself, but there was nothing, and then God created from there. This is, this is so important to understand as to how Christianity is different than other religions, especially the polytheistic ones. I hope you took your vitamins this morning, but keep, keep leaning in. This is important, and this is going to be good for us, right? Which means this. Within the Christian faith, because of Genesis 1, we are not trying to escape back to a previous reality. We are not living, longing to escape this world, wanting to go back to a pre-existing one. We don't see our physical present world as bad and this pre-existent kind of spiritual world as good that we are trying to escape the confines of physicality to get to this kind of higher, more spiritual place. This is not Christianity. And God, in doing Genesis 1 the way he did, is showing us this. This happens in the modern world where we create, and I don't want to pick a fight, but I need to bring clarity here as well, where we create these monasteries out in the distant areas, disconnected from the world, where people can go and escape from their lives as we detach from reality and become some sort of higher spiritual place. This is not what we get in the Genesis 1 creation account, because we 
see that God creates creation as good. He plants us in it with a purpose to tend and to keep it. We'll see more of it next week as the story unfolds. But we as Christ followers believe God has placed us here, that this world is good. And we are not trying to escape a physical world to get to some other kind of place. We're rooted here. Even we know in in the New Testament, as Christ comes and Christ returns and puts this world to right, he's going to create new heavens and a new earth. And where will we live? We will live in the new earth. We're not going to live in the heavens as these kind of disembodied spiritual people floating around on clouds. No, we will live in a physical earth, but the dwelling of God will be with man. It will be the the heavens and the earth united, and we'll be on the physical earth. We're not escapists like other polytheistic faiths. On the other side, monotheistic creation accounts, where God is kind of single person, all alone for all eternity, and then he creates the world. And there are many of them in the world, as there were many of them around in those days too. Um, And he, he creates these beings to be his servants or to worship him. Michael Reeves says it so beautifully, and so he's such a funny writer in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says this, single person God, uh, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with good sense of humor, right? It's just his humorous take at this, the monotheistic God. Have a look with me at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who's God talking to there? Some have said it's the angels. No, no, no. Human beings are not created in the image of angels. Human beings are created in the image of God. John chapter 1 confirms for us, this is a whisper of the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian reference. This account is different than not just polytheistic creation accounts of the day that speak of trying to escape to another world. No, no, this is different than monotheistic accounts of the day because this is not a lonely, needy God trying to create out of lack a people who will serve him and uh, almost um, uh, and worship him. And and this is fundamentally the problem with all monotheistic gods. How can a solitary being who's been alone for all of eternity be essentially loving if there was no one else to love? Love only comes after then at creation because love always involves doing something for another. Love is always concerned. Real love is concerned with another. Single-person gods who've spent all eternity alone uh, are inevitably self-centered beings who need to be worshipped, and they need servants. And so this is so... It's, 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 this, it's this that makes Christianity different. You see, in monotheistic gods, love is not intrinsic to our world. It comes after creation. But with The Christian God, with the Trinitarian God, love is intrinsic. It's foundational. It's the essence of who God is. And so our world was created out of the Trinitarian love. If you look at Christianity, it's completely different, not just from the polytheistic uh, religions of the day, but the monotheistic uh, religions of the day as well. Because God is triune. He creates our world out of perfect community. Because he is essentially not lonely or needy. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community. And, and, and what this perfect relationship does is it overflows to make the circle bigger, to create our world born out of love, born out of the goodness of the Trinitarian community. This is totally different than all other faiths in the world. And you only get this in Christianity. Because of, 
I mean, what is for many people a strange concept? I think a concept that no human being would make up, the Trinity. We still struggle to wrap our brains around the mystery. But it is this mystery that's so present in Genesis 1 that redefines our creation as totally different than anything else that's out there in the world. I'm sorry, I really must keep us going. But I really want to lay these things in deep for us as a people. Jesus refers back to this in John chapter 17 and verse 5. Jesus is approaching the crucifixion. He's approaching the cross. And this is his high priestly prayer. And he prays this. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before creation, there was God. It was Trinity in perfect love relationship and perfect goodness, which overflowed to make our world. I've got one more point to make. Let me recap. Genesis chapter 1 is not about the how and the when. For the original audience, as for us, it's about the who and the why. It teaches us that God made everything and to reserve worship for him and him alone. God made our world not out of deficit, but he made it out of the overflow of his love. And he made our world, last point, good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. God creates our world as good, and he declares it as good. Now, what God's not doing here is quality control. This is not an inspection. This is not an inspection like as an inspector at a shoe store or something. God is not picking up a product when he says it's good and goes, yeah, yeah, it passes. You know, pass and, and we'll let it go. When God declares something as good, it's much more like if you've ever done this, if you've ever opened a really, really nice bottle of wine. Like, like no when you open it, you pour it in a glass, you let it breathe. And so something of the aroma comes there. And you pick it up and you smell it. And you smell it. And something of that smell intrigues you and draws you in. And then you, then you take a sip and, and you put it in your mouth. And it just cuts you off for a second from the world. It completely distracts you from everything that's, that's happening around you. And it draws you in to absorb and to taste something of the flavors. Initially, it's like silky on your mouth. But then it almost bites you just a little bit at the back of the mouth to let you know there's more going on here than something that's just easy and comfortable. And it first up hits you with flavors of dark fruit before it evolves and becomes into spicy notes and cigar boxy things. And all the whilst you've forgotten about everything that's happening around you. And you've been completely drawn in. And the flavor constantly evolves on your tongue as it goes before you finally have to take a second after opening your eyes, take a breath. And what do you say? Wow, this is good. This is what God is doing with creation. It's not a, well, this passes inspection. This is an enjoyment and an appreciation of the goodness of his world. It's a creation birthed out of the nature, this, this Trinitarian God who, who then tastes and sees of his own world and declares its goodness. But there's even more going on here. When God says it is good, it is both an appreciation as well as a declaration. He is defining it as so. Creation as declared good by God is therefore good because he's declared it so. He's he's giving it an attribute. He's giving it a value. He's, He's making it good by speaking it so as well. Not just affirming it, but he's even making it so when he says it's good. Let me explain. In the Sally Lloyd Jones Children's Bible, she gets this right. When when she speaks of the way in which God creates human beings, the phrase she uses is she says this. She says, And they were lovely because he loved them. They were lovely because he loved them. Creation is good because he 
declared it so. It's, it's God's benediction over creation that, that makes it to be true. In other words, you, you could say creation radiates the glories of God because, it's the delight, because creation itself is living under the delight and the enjoyment and the approval of God himself and him declaring its goodness. It's this Trinitarian circle of love and goodness that overflows to create a world and then declares it so that causes our world to rise up and praise its maker. Which is why we are moved every time we see creation, don't we? Whether you climb to the top of Chapman's Peak or Elsie's Peak and you look out over the ocean, you're pulled upwards. Your soul is pulled upwards as you see the who, as you understand more of the why. It's a spiritual experience, these things. The blind luck doesn't do justice to it. The multiverse doesn't touch the side of it. It's creator God who shows us. And it's this declaration of creation's goodness on behalf of God that makes it to be so. And it's why when you and I look at creation, we are drawn in and upward to see God more and more and more. Whether it be the sunrise or the sunset or the moon glistening over the ocean at false bay or that strange blue creature that washed up there like two months ago and made all of us go wow what is this thing isn't it beautiful all of this is because creation is living under the benediction of its maker who declared it to be good so as to draw us with it into worship of God I must land us there All that to say, you and I are invited in. Something has clearly gone wrong with our world. Something has clearly gone wrong with us as human beings. And we're going to hear more of that in the coming weeks. But to stop and to go, creation is good. It's good because it's living under the benediction of its maker. Next steps for us this week, I want to encourage us. Let's worship our creator more than ever before. Let's be a people of worship. Let me land us in prayer. Creation account. Man, we debate so much around it. And sometimes we wish it would be different. But when we just stop in a day like today and we understand what it was to them then, we marvel at the way in which you chose to do it the way you did. It speaks to every culture. It speaks to every uh, people of every age. It's only like kind of modern Western thinking over the last few hundred years that have really struggled with it. But for every people through every age, this radiates your truth, God. Thank you that today you speak to us of you are the creator God and that we need to be careful of worshiping created things. That you don't call us to worship you because you need it or you lack it. But you call us to step into this glorious circle of goodness which you overflowed out of to make our world. God, I pray for us as a people this week that you would lead us into deeper heights or deeper depths and higher heights of worship, God. We are worshipers before we are anything else. And I pray this week you would lead us into worship.